You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, as part of a special panel session on Shakespeare in Ireland, a paper by Dr. Naomi Makarivi from University College Dublin. Her paper was entitled Shakespeare on the 17th Century Irish Stage. The panel was introduced by Professor Willie Maley from the University of Glasgow. Okay, hello, good afternoon and welcome back. Uh, My name is Willie Maley and it's my pleasure to introduce this afternoon session on Shakespeare and Ireland. Naomi Makarivi is a lecturer in Renaissance Literature in UCD. She's published on 17th century Irish women's writing and the literary culture of the 1641 rebellion. Her edition of the letters of the First Duchess of Ormond is forthcoming with the Renaissance English Text Society, and she is co-editor with Fionnula Delane and Emily Pine of The Body and Pain in Irish Literature and Culture, which is forthcoming with Palgrave, and with Julie Eckerl of Women's Life Writing and Early Modern Ireland. So, Dr Naomi McAreevy. Thank you very much. Um, So as Ireland joins the rest of the world um, in celebrating Shakespeare's quarter centenary this year, in my paper this afternoon, I will explore the place of Shakespeare on the 17th century Irish stage. I will outline the Shakespeare plays staged in Dublin's Warbrook Street and Smock Alley Theatres in the context of the other imported and original plays um, performed there. and will reflect upon the way Shakespeare figured in 17th century Irish theatrical culture. Ultimately, I want to make the case that disproportionate attention to Shakespeare risks skewing our understanding of the 17th century Irish stage, facilitating the continued marginalisation and neglect of original Irish drama. I will outline what I see as some of the key characteristics and concerns of a sample of these Irish um, plays, so Irish is scare quotes, and I'll talk about that um, in a while, um, and argue that they need more scholarly attention if we are to better understand the rich theatrical culture of early modern Ireland. So the surviving evidence indicates that Irish theatre audiences of the 17th century enjoyed Shakespeare. At least, the records that we have for the Smock Alley Theatre tell us that at least 12 different Shakespeare plays across 18 separate performances were staged between 1662 and the close of the century. The list of Shakespeare plays and the dates of their performances are recorded on the slide um, based on information (coughs) drawn from the Shakespeare Performances database um, here in um, NUI Galway. You'll see that the first Shakespeare play staged in Smock Alley was Othello. Um, and with four further performances in the later decades of the 17th century, um, Othello was the most popular Shakespeare play performed on the Irish stage, and then, of course, most recently earlier this year. Um, Macbeth and Henry VIII, and one of Shakespeare's collaborative plays, of course, share um, second place, um, each enjoying two separate performances. <coughs> A Smock Alley Theatre copy of the third folio of Shakespeare's works, published in 1664, um, is still extant. 
Serving as a prompt book for the company's players, it shows annotations on 11 plays. These annotations, which include deletions, additions and some marginal inscriptions, offer a unique opportunity to explore how Shakespeare's plays were prepared for the stage for one, um, by one important Irish playing company. It is therefore of great interest to Shakespearean scholars and Irish theatre historians alike in showing how these particular plays were adapted um, for Irish audiences. Its broader significance in the history of the Irish stage is more problematic, however. As the foremost record of early Smock Alley performances, it massively overrepresents the proportion of Shakespeare plays performed in 17th century Ireland. It therefore risks distorting our understanding of contemporary Irish theatre. We simply don't have a non-Shakespearean equivalent to the Smock Alley prompt book, um, which um, you'll see from... Oh, actually, that big image is the first folio. Um, uh, but you'll see is a substantial text, large, valuable, and not exactly easy to lose. Um, instead, historical records of the performances of other non-Shakespearean plays are much more ephemeral, found within the correspondence of contemporaries, as well as in the published editions of plays written for the Smock Alley stage. These records are much easier to lose, um, and that's assuming they existed in the first place. And in fact, there is much we have lost. Um, a play by John Ogilby, um, who's twice served as Ireland's Master of the Revels, um, is one example. This has enormous consequences for our understanding of 17th century Irish theatre. To give you some statistics, of the 30 plays that we know to have been performed in Ireland between 1660 and 1685, almost 50% are by Shakespeare. Needless to say, this is not an accurate um, reflection of the proportion of Shakespearean to non-Shakespearean performances in 17th century Ireland, Um, and it is the non-Shakespearean plays um, that have been lost to history. So all things considered, Shakespeare can only tell us so much about 17th century Irish um, theatre. He is just one of many London-based Elizabethan and Jacobean playwrights whose works were performed in Ireland. Um, The plays of John Fletcher and Ben Johnson um, were also regularly staged in Smock Alley. And if we look earlier to Smock Alley's predecessor, the Werberg Street Theatre, the first public playhouse in Ireland established in Dublin in the um, mid-1630s and closed for good, as it turned out, by the 1641 rebellion, we have no records of any Shakespearean performances. Instead, it is the plays of Fletcher, Johnson and Thomas Middleton that were staged there, as well as famously um, the work um, uh, of James Shirley, the well-established London playwright who took up residence at the Werberg Street Theatre in November uh, 1636. The Royal Master was the first of Shirley's plays written and performed in Dublin. In one of ten commendatory poems written for the Dublin publication of this Shirley's first Irish play, in that it was kind of written um, uh, in Ireland, um, Andrew Cooper cast the playwright as the heir to Ben Johnson, who had died only a few months earlier, leaving the position of poet um, laureate vacant. Um, And he says, Surely, stand forth and put thy laurel on. Phoebus next hour, now Ben is dead and gone, truly (coughs) legitimate. Ireland is so just to say, you rise, and the phoenix of his dust. Um, And when the Irish-born playwright Henry Burnell alludes to the best of English poets for the stage in the prologue to his play Langartha, which was also staged in Warburg Street Theatre, he refers to Johnson, um, not Shakespeare. Unlike some of his fellow English dramatists, Shakespeare is rarely name-checked in the commendatory verse that surrounds the drama of the period. An exception can be found in the last of the poems that are prefixed to Shirley's The Royal Master. This poem, written by James Mervyn, imagines Shirley's brain as a limbus patrum, or um, father's limbo. Where Bowman, Fletcher, Shakespeare and a train of glorious poets in their active heat move in that orb as in their former seat. 
When thou began'st to give thy master life, methought I saw them all with friendly strife, each catching at in his dose, Beaumont his weight, Shakespeare his mirth, and Fletcher his conceit. According to Mervyn's fancy, then, Shakespeare contributes just one of the ingredients to Shirley's recipe, that's mirth. Um, Shirley is imagined to have taken the best qualities of all three playwrights, ultimately producing a play that surpasses the accomplishments of them all. Whether this is a genuine reflection of Mervyn's assessment of Shirley's relative merits as a dramatist is beside the point. What interests me is that Shirley is represented as just one of a complement of skilled playwrights that influence Shirley. Or the Shakespeare, I think, um, is, is represented as, as, as one that influences Shirley. Further references to Shakespeare in the drama of 17th century Ireland can be found among the poems that accompany um, the... 1646 publication of Henry Burkhead's remarkable play Cola's Fury or Lyranda's Misery and um, Lyranda is an anagram of, of Ireland. Um, this play was written for the Confederate Catholics in Kilkenny in the midst of the wars that followed the 1641 Rising. It therefore does not come um, from either of the two theatre royals that bookend this period Warburg um, Street in the 1630s or Smock Alley in the 1660s um, both of which were so closely affiliated with the Protestant administration at Dublin Castle. Rather, this play emerges from the home of the Supreme Council of the Catholic Confederation. Um, one of these poems um, uh, in, in this publication, uh, written by Dan- Daniel Brady, praises Burkhead's play by imagining it, um, as Mervyn does Shakespeare's play, as a product of the collaborative efforts of Shakespeare, Johnson um, and Fletcher. Dear friend, um, uh, Burkhead, since then this piece so well limbed as most would say twas by Ben Johnson trimmed that Shakespeare, Fletcher and all did combine to make Lyranda <coughs> through the clouds to shine so in a play so openly uh, and self-consciously about Ireland, it is all that Brady imagines Johnson, Shakespeare and Fletcher coming together to produce it but perhaps it's a tacit acknowledgement of the fact that the author of Cola's Fury has no Anglophone Irish dramatic tradition um, that he can draw upon the lack of an Irish theatrical inheritance is suggested in another poem written for the publication of Cola's Fury, and this time by Paul Allward. He evokes ne'er enough praise Shakespeare in celebrating Burke's dramatic achievement, but cites Shakespeare um, alongside the other big names of London theatre who are compared unfavourably to Burkhead. Um, Johnson, for all his wit, could never paint our times um, as you have hit the manners of our age. The fame declines of ne'er enough praise Shakespeare if thy lines come to be published. Beaumont and Fletcher's skill submits to yours and your more learned quill. The most admired Shirley and the crew of English dramatics cry hail to you, Phoebus' choice darling. Once again, Shakespeare is lumped with his fellow London playwrights sandwiched between Johnson on the one side and Beaumont and Fletcher on the other. So while we may think that Shakespeare stands head and shoulders above his contemporaries, um, Allward didn't think so. Pointedly, um, Allward identifies Shakespeare as one of this crew of English dramatics, a designation um, that has three significant implications. First, the essential Englishness of the theatrical canon that Burkhead um, inherits is explicitly highlighted. Second, the derogatory connotations of the word crew are suggested. Um, It's a bit like describing them as a gang or a a mob. Um, Third, this crew of English dramatics have to make way for Phoebus' choice darling, Burkhead. Bringing all three points together, we're left with a tantalising suggestion that a new Irish dramatic tradition centred on Confederate Catholic Kilkenny has now been established with Cola's Fury. Um, but the foundation of an Irish tradition of English language drama had begun at least six years earlier. 
um, among the Confederate Catholics and perhaps in the audience of Cola's Fury if it was indeed performed at Kilkenny and um, we don't know for sure if it was, um, was Henry Burnell whose play Langartha has been staged, had been staged with some acclaim um, in the Warburg Street Theatre. As far as we know, Langartha is the first original drama by an Irish playwright surviving today, um, although we do know that Burnell wrote at least one earlier play which is now lost. Um, it therefore occupies a key position in the history of Irish theatre. In a commendatory poem written for the publication of Langartha, John Birmingham represents Burnell as the true heir to Johnson, despite the fact that, quote, thou England never sawest. Um, and according to Birmingham, the Irish son has the potential to supplant his English father. Um, in some things thou dost pass him, be more sweet, more modest, smile, less tedious. Um, thy own fate go thou on stoutly then. If thou proceed, um, him though it be much, in all points thou exceed. So Birmingham instructs Burnell to find his own poetic voice, thy own fate go on, go thou on stoutly then, and promises that if he does, he will exceed his English predecessor. Another commendatory poem in Langartha, this time a Latin verse written by the playwright's daughter, Eleanor Burnell, anticipates that Ireland will be made famous and by her father's work. Overall, a strong sense of a burgeoning Irish theatrical and literary culture is evident around the publication of, of Langartha. Um, and which critics have argued quite persuasively is a response to um, St. Patrick's for um, St. Patrick for Ireland, and then the um, and the position then that Shirley um, as a, um, a kind of a visiting uh, playwright, resident playwright, had. Um, but a similar story can be told about Catherine Phillips' um, play Pompeii, which was written in stage and restoration Dublin. A poem written in Ireland by someone who styles herself Philo Philippa um, celebrates Phillips as a woman writer who inspires other women um, to write. Um, let to the excellent Arinda this poem says uh, let the male poets their male fables choose they I invoke Arinda for my muse um, and Andrew Carpenter is, um, has given some really interesting talks about this and he reckons it's not a woman at all um, it's a kind of a group of, um, of men and actually I'm, I'm, ten- I'm inclined to agree with him but anyway the idea is that the Irish location is really important um, uh, to this uh, Philippa um, uh, whoever um, he or she is or they are um, um, and that, that Phillips, despite her being kind of a temporary visitor to Ireland, is responsible for kind of encouraging um, literary activity. Um, so in this poem, we once again have the idea of a new literary inheritance being established in Ireland, but this time it is not only the Irish, but Irish women who are the beneficiaries. Um, despite increasing scholarly attention and the availability of incre- um, inexpensive modern editions, um, Irish plays continue to be overshadowed by the canonical works of English drama. Langartha, for example, shares a source with Shakespeare's Hamlet, but while Hamlet is probably the most staged play in history, Langartha has been staged only once on St. Patrick's Day, 1640. To the best of my knowledge, Langartha has not appeared on any undergraduate English curriculum, um, although I'm lucky um, to teach it um, at MA level at UCD. In contrast, many of the students in one of my final year Renaissance drama modules were studying Hamlet for the third time um, in three years. Um, While, of course, um, there are new things to be gained from each reading or viewing or studying of Hamlet, um, I do think that there's something amiss when Shakespeare's best-known play can reappear three times on an already crammed undergraduate English curriculum um, of an Irish university, while the first original play by an Irish dramatist is nowhere to be found. Disproportionate attention to Shakespeare risks skewing our understanding of the 17th century Irish stage, leading to the marginalisation and neglect of, um, of original Irish drama. 
and actually also of Fletcher and, and Johnson and all the other plays and the, the English plays that were um, staged there. Um, but, but by Irish drama, I mean that's drama written specifically for the Irish stage by writers from a variety of ethnic and religious backgrounds, including visitors like the possibly Catholic James Shirley and the Protestant Catherine Phillips and natives um, such as the old English Henry Brunel and the new English Roger Boyle, um, Earl of Orrery. Um, it encompasses plays um, such as Shirley's St. Patrick for Ireland, which dramatises St. Patrick's conversion of the Irish to Christianity, Burnell's Langartha, which I've mentioned already, which is about a Norwegian Amazon who is betrayed by the Danish king she reluctantly married after he helped to overturn the Swedish occupation of her homeland. Um, Burkhead's Colas Fury, which dramatises from a, Catholic, a Confederate Catholic perspective the recent wars, starting with the 1641 Rising and ending with the Ormond cessation of 1643, um, or Philip's translation of Pompeii, um, which explores the aftermath of civil war and regicide. And actually, with Pompeii, I'm particularly interested in the way this was such a collaborative effort. You know, it was all of the viceregal court kind of gathered together to produce this play and contributed um, and verse and, um, and, and music and dances, and, and actually, it was very much. She, she kind of gave the word, at least translated the words, but gave the words. But actually, um, uh, there's so many other people involved with that production. But of course, that's dangerous because I don't want to be taken away from a female-authored um, play at the same time um, uh, to kind of to get the Irish uh, people in. Um, <laughs> Plays written for the 17th century Irish stage share some distinctive themes and characteristics, I think. Firstly, they are probably best understood as political allegories, representing directly or indirectly um, contemporary events and experiences, um, as well as their um, key actors. So this is explicitly acknowledged in Cola's Fury, um, um, as I've said um, already, um, and it's specifically about Catholic experiences of the wars, and to a lesser extent Pompeii, um, which explores the difficulties of reconciling parliamentarians to the viceregal court um, at the Restoration. But it's also the case with St. Patrick um, for Ireland, which more broadly allegorises the English conquest of Ireland, um, and Langartha, which explores the increasingly troubled relationship between old English Catholics and the, their king um, in the years preceding um, civil war. Secondly, these plays are fundamentally preoccupied with the traumatic experience of war and its terrible aftermath, as each attempts to represent and come to terms with um, wartime trauma. In Pompeii, the beheading of the eponymous ruler is not staged, but the play's eyewitness accounts of his death draw upon contemporary representations of the execution of Charles I, with the trauma of, of his death resurfacing throughout the play um, and ultimately unresolved by the ending. Cola's Fury stages scenes of extreme violence, um, including the onstage massacre of civilian men, women and children, and the spectacular torture of an innocent woman and old man. And in doing so, I think, dramatises Catholic experience of tra traumatic violence to counterbalance um, a contemporary Protestant atrocity literature. Um, Langartha uses sexual violence as an allegory for the mistreatment of old English Catholics by the King, while St. Patrick for Ireland, um, uh, um, in this play, rape is used as an instance of the barbarism of Irish natives before their civilisation by St. Patrick. In both plays, gender violence is used to explore the power struggles between um, a native and newcomer. So the third thing then, tragicomedy um, is the um, dominant genre of 17th century Irish drama. It's open-endedness best equipped to represent the insecurity and instability of the present moment. In the epilogue to the printed edition of Langartha, Burnell describes his play as being neither a comedy nor a tragedy, but betwixt both. Um, and in this, he provides a definition of tragicomedy that is unique for the period um, and differs significantly from Fletcher's um, better-known description of the genre. 
um, the ending of St. Patrick for Ireland, which anticipates a second part that never appears. Um, it obviously didn't go down well, um, or at any rate, um, Shirley then uh, uh, left Dublin. So, so this promised second part never appears. Um, is by default then is um, similarly um, betwixt both. And Cola's Fury also deliberately um, leaves the play open-ended with Abner, who's a kind of a version of General, um, the, the Confederate General Thomas Preston, um, promising at the end of the play that, quote, if our wrongs be not re- repaired by the cessation, quote, we will again renew this tragedy. So very self-conscious kind of uh, gener- uh, appropriation of kind of generic uh, uh, categories. Even Pompeii, the play most invested in providing closure, this, the court wants to reconcile um, the, the, the parties um, is still unable to accommodate Pompey's grieving widow, um, Cornelia, in, um, in its happy ending. Actually, I think it's one of um, Phillips's innovations. Is, is kind of Cornelia's uh, really prominent role in the play, um, and, and I think it's it's partly because of um, uh, of, um, of of the Irish context that that's not possible. Um, fourth and finally, these plays are complex and ambiguous in the representation of the ongoing struggles of contemporary Ireland. In St. Patrick for Ireland, we are left uneasy with the use of violence in St. Patrick's supposedly peaceful conquest and cognizant of the necessity of violence to maintain Ireland's subjugation to Patrick's particular brand of Christianity. In Langartha, we have as little hope for the reconciliation of the Amazon and her errant husband as between the old English Catholics and the king um, that the marriage um, allegorised. In Cola's fury, the renewal of his hostilities seems inevitable. And with Pompey, the reconciliation of old enemies is revealed as theatrical and insubstantial, with the possibility of peace, a long-term aspiration, rather than something that can be easily achieved. Overall, the drama of the period suggests that the religio-political struggle in Ireland is by no means over, as indeed it wasn't, um, and perhaps isn't. And I say that in the context of um, another project that I'm doing, which is looking at how the 1641 rebellion has been is remembered in Northern Ireland today. So, so this very much in my mind. Um, so, how um, might we relate these Irish plays back to Shakespeare? The Shakespeare play most associated with Ireland is, of course, Henry V, and with its writing and performance in 1599, um, reflecting on the ongoing Elizabethan wars in Ireland. Henry V also introduces um, Shakespeare's only Irish character, Captain McMorris, who famously asks, um, what is my nation? Shakespeare's McMorris can only answer in um, negative Irish stereotypes, as, as is well known, ish a villain and a bastard and a knave and a rascal. Because this lisping stage Irish man is a ventriloquist dummy, mouthing words voiced by an English actor who needs instructions on how to do an Irish accent badly, written by an English playwright who, as far as we know, never set foot in Ireland. McMorris is no Irish man, but a cipher for English anxieties about Ireland um, and the Irish during the last Tudor campaign in Ireland. He can't answer his own questions question, instead only multiplying and repeating it as he asks again, what is my nation? To Shakespeare and his play, Ireland and the Irish are inscrutable. But we can find other McMorrises within early modern drama if only we look for them. The plays of 17th century Ireland abound with military men and women who, like Morris, are fighting a war over Ireland. These McMorrises speak from their own scripts and refuse to be relegated to the subplot. They are more eloquent than Shakespeare's Irish captain and they have more agency. Together they represent complex, multiple and competing versions of Irishness. McMorris might ask the question, what is my nation? But the characters of St. Patrick for Ireland, Langartha, Cola's Fury, Pompeii and the other 17th century Irish plays and performances grapple with the answers. In short, if we want to examine Irishness on the early modern stage, we need to look beyond Shakespeare and the English canon and intend instead to original Irish drama.
Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.